disturbances rock the Kansas City area and the Kansas Senate race and House races are set. We'll talk about both issues, me and Derek Donovan on Deep Background. Stay with us. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for June 3rd, 2020. We've all lost track of time and 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 lost track of space, really, in the news environment that we're in. In a few minutes, we're going to talk with Brian Lowry about the dynamics in the Kansas Senate race, the Kansas House race. Uh, he's joining us from D.C. But uh, for the first half of the program, we want to talk with Murray Rose Williams, a good friend, reporter at The Star, uh, one of the great reporters uh, covering uh, just this extraordinary news year. And we want to talk, uh, Murray, about the events of the last 96 hours, really since the brutal killing of, of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis and what has happened in Kansas City. You have been down to Main Street and Cleaver Boulevard. What, what have you seen? Well, what I saw uh, initially, I got down there early um, on what day is today? It's Tuesday on Monday, and um, early there were protesters lined up on Main Street, um, and there was a small group of protesters, and they were holding signs. And of course, you know, it's a protest; it's not a picket. So they're yelling and um, chanting, and they were very peaceful. At the same time, the um, perimeter of Mill Creek Park, which is primarily where all of this has taken place, there by the fountain in uh, around the Country Club Plaza, was surrounded by um, police. And um, they weren't police in dress blues. They were police in um, what I call tactical gear. Um, but the, 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 the protesters were ignoring them. They were on one side and they were protesting. It was, uh, you know, it's actually kind of... Um, uplifting um, to see people expressing themselves. Um, that was what I saw initially. As the day went on and the park filled a little bit more with um, uh, protesters, more police came and more police came until they were too deep um, around the perimeter of the park, meaning they were on um, Cleaver and not on Main, but on Cleaver and on J.C. Nichols Boulevard in that corner there. Right, right. Uh, by the plaza. By the plaza. Um, and it was clear to me um, that they were there to protect the plaza. They were there to, as, uh, to guard the plaza. But it was also clear to me that they were somewhat of a, uh, I want to call it almost an instigating force just by the nature of their presence. Um, if you go to a nonviolent protest, and, and let me just preface this with saying that, you know, as a reporter, um, <clears throat> my job is to report the news, to put my opinion in my pocket and keep it there as I report what I hear, what I see and, and, and what's told to me. And I do that on a daily basis. And I did that on Monday. However, and this, as I'm talking to you now, I'm going to just uh, put, add a little bit of opinion to my expressions as to what I saw. You know, I'm going to just kind of what I saw. And, and, and so you go to a 
nonviolent protest and you want to keep the peace, but you come in tactical gear as if you are bare for war. That is what got fired up this crowd. It really did. Just the mere presence of them. Although the people maintained no violence. There was no violence in that park that I saw. Do you think, Murray, based on your experience down there, and I, and, and not just the day you were down there, but just broadly speaking about the weekend, if you will, that some sort of clash between demonstrators and the police was almost inevitable because the, the crowd would test the parameters of what the police would permit, and the police weren't in the mood for permitting much of anything. And so you almost set up a situation in which, you know, something was going to happen. Well, I think that had the police not come as if to say, we're here to do war with you, that there would have been less of that. Right. Um, But there were clearly, there were clearly, and this is true across the country, some people who were interested in a confrontation, by far the minority uh, of the crowd. And in fact, the crowd did some self-policing, did it not, of saying, hey, knock this off. But there, at, at any gathering like that, there seems to be a handful of folks who want to test the limits of what can happen. A- a- and the dynamic was the police were going to assign that to every protester, and then we're into the melee that we were into. Is that, is that roughly what you think might have happened? There is some of that, but I also, I'll I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate um, here. Um, I I will say this. That is not the first protest that we've had in Kansas City. Cole, no question. There have been many, many protests, and many of them have had crowds far larger than the crowd that gathered at Mill Creek Park. And I have been, and I'm sure you have as well, to many of those protests. Take the Women's March for One. And never have I seen that level of force appear at a protest in Kansas City. I have never seen police show up in riot gear to start a protest. So I have to ask myself, why is that? Did they come anticipating violence? And if they did, why? Right. Or was the very approach of the police department provocative in itself in a way that you would not see in a similar demonstration. You're right. I've covered, I was at freedom, uh, the freedom fountain after the Rodney King verdict in the 1990s when Emmanuel Cleaver was mayor. And there was that similar frustration with uh, both the verdict and the police. And yet the crowd was much, uh, much less provoked. Then it seems like they were provoked this time. Marie, you see, you, you see a lot of people talking about the term outside agitators right now. And your social media feeds, presumably, if they're like mine, you've seen people who are saying, oh, there, there are outsiders bringing bricks to these protests and encouraging people to, you know, hoping people will pick them up and throw them through windows. Have you seen any of that? I did not see that, but I was told by um, police that they had um, apprehended several people who had um, bricks and um, frozen bottles of water in their backpacks. And I think that's one of the reasons police need to be there. They should apprehend those people, that they they should apprehend them. Um, 
but I did not see anyone throwing rocks at the police. I mean, they were throwing verbal rocks, if you will. I mean, they were saying some ugly things, but again, the police are the target of this entire protest, this national protest. And so you expect words. It makes me think of what my mama used to say, you know, sticks and stones, but words will never harm you. So there was a lot of that, but I did not see anyone with bricks. Although, like I said, the police did say that they apprehended a few people with bricks and rocks in their backpack and they took those folks into custody and they very well should. Right. And the other thing, uh, you know, that we should note is that uh, folks have said, well, the protesters had bricks and water bottles. The police had riot sticks, shields, face shields, pepper spray, beanbag rounds, some plastic rounds. I mean, it isn't as if they were unarmed or defenseless. In fact, the opposite is the case that, uh, you know, they could inflict, and in some cases, and we've seen video evidence of this, have inflicted physical pain on people exercising their rights down at uh, Mill Creek Park. Yes, and and, and I will say this. While I was there on Monday, um, the mayor came down um, during the day around 3.30, 4 o'clock or so. I think it was more closer to 4 o'clock. He came down, he did a presser, and then um, walked over to the park and addressed the crowd. And at first, they were very rowdy and wouldn't listen to anything that he was saying. And they calmed down. He was able to calm them down, and they got very quiet. And they listened to him, and they knelt with him, they prayed with him. In fact, he led some chants, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, It was really um, a a good experience. Um, But the very moment that he left, and I would say, you know, less than five minutes after he was gone from the scene, the police sprayed um, a line of protesters with pepper spray. Um, And those those protesters were very rowdy vocally rowdy, um, saying very ugly things, but they were not violent. And they were not a threat to property or to other people's. Absolutely not. No, they were on the side of the park and they were standing on the sidewalk. And I think one lady slipped off the sidewalk. They sprayed her with pepper spray Um, and they sprayed it uh, an entire line of people with pepper spray. Yeah. Um, Do you, you, uh, Murray and Derek, chime in here, because we both, all three of us have been in this community for a long time. And you're right, Murray, we've covered uh, protests and we've 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 covered the tension between the police department and the community. Do we see this as a turning point? Do we see it not just in police reform, but an idea that this community and frankly, every community in America, but certainly this one needs to rethink the way it does uh, its security? Or is this just a passing thing that will fade away that won't change anything? Murray? Well, you know what? Yes, I think that they should rethink it, but they have to acknowledge that their security is different 
depending on the people who are protesting. And I think that is so evident in this situation that we have not acknowledged that when the uh, protesters are a group of primarily uh, people of color, they approach the security in a very different manner and they have to ask themselves why they do that. I mean, we watched the protesters who were um, asking for the states to open up the states during COVID-19. And those people showed up to protest, some of them had weapons strapped to their hips, visibly. And they were not met with the same type of, of, of force. So I think, yes. Well, I, think, let me, I think that's an extraordinarily important point. And I've said this for some time, Murray. Uh, if, you know, the protesters at the stay-at-home thing who brought weapons very clearly displayed automatic or semi-automatic weapons, Battle fatigues, all that. They they said repeatedly, "We're these are you know we have Second Amendment rights to carry this. Missouri allows us to carry this weaponry." Can you imagine what would have happened if the demonstrators in Mill Creek Park had armed themselves in a similar way? Right. I mean that carnage, that, carnage. Absolutely, absolutely. So so they have to. We first have to acknowledge that there is a clear distinction in how they approach um, such protests because of who is at the protest. And that is, that is really, um, you know, it's very important to, before they can start to do any. Do you think that that reckoning is likely? Yes, I do think it's likely as long as people like yourself and I make sure that we express that, that we show that that is what's happening. We have to stop focusing on, you know, who broke a window at Nordstrom's um, and focus on, you know, what's behind that um, and, um, and and stop making these protesters uh, blanketing them as, you know, criminals and thugs and those type, those terminologies, because that's not what was out there. Yeah. Were- and, and I would also add to, uh, to that uh, comment, this thought that um, if this, if this period of protest had been limited to Kansas city and Minneapolis, then we might've said, okay, there are just, you know, there are specific problems in Kansas city that, but, a hundred cities have gone through this. A right. hundred, right. and 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 the and the story in all of those cities is virtually the same. Absolutely. That people are frustrated with their police departments, and that when they tried to demonstrate that frustration, to at least to some degree, the pushback was very militaristic. And and so the idea that Kansas City needs a conversation about its relationship with the police department is not just Kansas City, right, Murray? I mean, this whole country needs to get into that conversation. Absolutely. Let me just say this. I mean, this this same scenario has been happening for decades and decades and decades. We talk about the scenario of black men being killed as something that has been happening for decades, but so has the response from our police departments when people uh, push back against that type of behavior. So, I mean, it's not like they don't have some type of playbook. I mean, we had Ferguson just, what, four years ago? Well, right. Right? And the same thing happened in Ferguson. Um, So, 
that's why I think that the conversation needs to change to talking about how police are responding and make that um, put that out front. Right. The the difference to me is that after Ferguson, Ferguson, uh, you know, exploded, but Kansas City did not. That's nor did Omaha or Minneapolis or Los Angeles or Cleveland or Houston or Dallas. The, the protests there were limited primarily to Ferguson and a little bit in St. Louis and on the periphery. This is a very different situation when you get the sense that all of America is saying enough, enough, fix it. Also, fix it. it's just the tenor of the times. I mean, we we have been sitting on a tinderbox of unrest that we were not on top of the same way on a national level at the time of Ferguson. You know, the, how many more ways do we need to talk about how divided we are right now? And, you know, I, I just think that it's a it's a level that has been rising to the point that it feels like it's natural that it would boil over. I also think that you have to add to the situation we're in now. You have to add COVID-19 to that. And, and I say that because people have been locked in their homes for three months, powerless or feeling powerless for three months. And then this happens and they have an opportunity now to exercise their power, to, 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 to express themselves, something that they you know, have been pent up for, for decades. And then you add on top of that, this real uh, frustration with having to be closed into your home and you bring all that, you know, it's just becomes the pot boils over. Um, and so, and, and we're seeing that. And maybe COVID-19 and that sense of frustration and feeling, feeling pent up, paired with this, is somewhat of a good thing so that the country as a whole can see that, you know, how, how bad the situation really yeah. is. Yeah, and then I would, you've got COVID, you've got, the, but also the, there's no question that the president plays a role in this and his reaction and, and the frustration, particularly, I must say, and Marie, we need to wrap up, but here, but um, particularly among young people. And I was struck again. I wasn't, I didn't go down, I'm, but uh, tell us from your own witnessing and experience. I was struck by the pictures that a, it seemed like a younger crowd. You didn't see, there were some older people, but it did seem like young people. And it did seem uh, more diverse, frankly, than you would typically see protests involving police brutality. It did, it did seem like a lot of young people of all races are saying, enough. Yeah, it was very diverse and it was quite young. Um, and, and you're right. Um, it was a diverse crowd, a young crowd. Um, I would say that the majority were people of color, but, you know, there were it was very, very diverse. And I did want to add this while I was down there and I was down there from like, you know, three o'clock on to um, almost 10 um, and down there when the mayor came back the second time. Um, so during that time that I was there, as it got dark, what have I witnessed um, a busload, and there was already hundreds of police there in right gear. I witnessed a busload of police officers get off of a bus, pull up and get off of a bus and run military style to a rock wall, duck down. Um, and I was standing next to a woman. She also saw it and she said, oh, my God, they're getting ready to mess us up. The mayor had just left. And sure enough, this crowd of uh, people in the park protesting, just yelling, they fired tear gas over the entire park. They just blanketed the park with tear gas. 
for no reason at all. Um, I woke up the next morning, my eyes were swollen shut. Um, so, you know, I, David, it's got to change that. It, that's just not the way things should be done. Right. And it really, and we'll wrap up with this, Murray. Really, the conversation needs to be that the police department works for the people. And is you know it is not an us versus or should not be right. us versus them on either side of the street, and sadly, in Kansas City, and in most major urban areas, us versus them is not only the dynamic in this time, but all the time, which is what leads to what happened in Minneapolis, in my view, and what has prompted the outpouring of anger across the country from people who say it should not be us versus them. Yep. I agree. Absolutely. Well, Murray uh, Rose Williams, thank you so much for joining us and talking about these issues. And this story of course will not, uh, I think you'd agree with this. It's not going anywhere. uh, uh, And, and should not go anywhere. We all need to be doing our jobs as reporters and, uh, columnists and editorial writers to make sure that uh, these kinds of scenes are rare in America and not commonplace. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Derek, stay with us. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Brian Lowry about what's going on in Washington on these matters and how that might affect the coming Senate race. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at The Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to The Star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Well, joining us now on the Deep Background Podcast is our good friend, Brian Lowry of the McClatchy Washington Bureau, who specializes in some of the uh, politics of our area. Brian, so uh, great to have you on the podcast. Um, First, how are you doing? How's Washington? Uh, Washington, like uh, pretty much every other major city in the United States right now, is uh, it is in the midst of uh, protests, and you know it's a it's a very interesting time in Washington, in in Kansas City, um, and it obviously on the heels that we've all been working from home for the past uh, past couple months. So it's been been amazing thing. My apartments, I guess. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit, if you could, about the impact as you see it of the COVID-19 crisis and then this latest, uh, uh, you know, police um, uh, and civil rights clash on the elections in 2020. I mean, the framing that we all understood 90 days ago is gone, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to say what will be the framing by the time we get to August and November, because essentially we're experiencing a year's worth of news every week, it feels like. 
So uh, I, I, I want to say that with the caveat that things could change quite a bit by the time we get to the election. But certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has changed how candidates can campaign. You've seen a them turning away from physical events, uh, embracing these digital events. Uh, you know, Barbara Bollier in the Kansas Senate race has been doing these virtual town halls. Uh, even Chris Kobach has been doing these fireside chats uh, where, you know, where next to his uh, fire and, you know, mounted deer head, uh, he's talking about the Constitution uh, and other things. So, you know, while candidates have been embracing online campaigning in recent years, I think it's become even more critical this election. It also changes what they're talking about. And we were, in, we were in a situation where healthcare and the economy were always going to be key issues in um, in these races, but it's really it's really amplified it, and uh, that's why you've seen uh, both Marshall and Boyer really highlight the fact that they're doctors in this Senate race. Although they've taken different tacks with that, obviously, you know, Marshall got a lot of attention uh, for shilling uh, hydroxychloroquine for. Um, you know, for some time. So, you know, which Bollier's campaign criticized him for. So I'd say the COVID-19 pandemic is going to continue to be the, um, the dominant theme of the race. But I do think these George Floyd protests uh, create a new interesting dynamic. I'm not as, I wouldn't say I'm far enough along to say really how that's going to affect uh, the races in Kansas where it hasn't been as maybe much as a hotbed as it has on the Missouri uh, side of state right. line. Right. But, you know, I did, I did get a comment from Sharice Davids, uh, the incumbent Democrat who's facing a tough election and in, in the third district uh, this week. And she was very careful in how she framed it. She had to, she had to really note that she empathized uh, with the African-American community and, and talked about how, you know, this is happening at a time when a pandemic is really affecting black and brown communities disproportionately and just, you know, just how righteous the anger is at this. But she also made, uh, you know, a very clear point to uh, condemn the property damage and looting and, and other actions that we've seen uh, happening, particularly at night. And, and, you know, her talking points on it weren't that different from what, Roy Blunt or Josh Hawley is saying about right. Let, let's back up for a minute and talk about the Senate race in Kansas we, again with this sort of framework of the changing uh, landscape. But we now know the field. We now know Mike Pompeo, the fever dream of some Republicans, has died a death. Uh, uh, and so, what do we? Th you know, the primary is sixty days away. Uh, I mean, it, it, so what are the dynamics in your view in the Republican primary in that Senate race? And what role, if any, will President uh, Donald Trump play? Because I think they're, you know, both Chris Kobach and Roger Marshall are clearly, uh, you know, angling for his endorsement. Which might make a difference in a primary, but not in the general. Talk to us about there, there, there's a lot there, but let's talk let's start with the Trump with the Trump aspect, which is I, I think it's very easy to say that Trump decided the 2018 gubernatorial primary. You know, when when you have a primary decided by a little more than three hundred votes, a presidential endorsement on the day before and a robocall from the president is probably what got Chris Kobach over the line 
against Jeff Collier. And that is what Roger Marshall desperately wants to avoid. And so you have both of these guys going on charm offenses with Trump. Uh, Marshall was one of, of several congressmen who got to attend the SpaceX launch uh, with Trump. He's really making an effort to endear himself to the president, whether you're looking at his public statements or whether you're looking at just you know all the behind the scenes things. So if Marshall can get an endorsement from Trump, that really cuts the legs out from under Kobach. And so much of Kobach's framing is, I'm the immigration guy, I'm the Trump agenda guy. Uh, Republicans who don't like Kobach have suggested to me that what Marshall's message really needs to be is that Kobach is the biggest threat to the Trump agenda because he'll make the race competitive. Let me just say, I think that's exactly right, Brian. But then doesn't that hurt you in the general if you're Kobach or Roger Marshall to have the Trump uh, endorsement around your neck? I mean, that's what arguably cost Kevin Yoder his seat. That's arguably. It hurts you in the third. And I, what I will, I will go as far as to predict that either of these candidates will probably lose the third district, but it doesn't necessarily hurt you statewide. And I mean, keep in mind that Kansas was a state that went for Trump by double digits. It may not be as enthusiastic. It was, you know, it was a Ted Cruz state and all that, but I think everyone still expects Trump to win Kansas in the presidential race. And so I don't think it's necessarily a drag on Marshall. Uh, It's certainly a drag on Republican candidates in the third district which complicates though that the narrative for Sharice right. David. And, and just to, so the history is straight, Chris Kobach was even with Laura Kelly in Kansas in 2018 in every place except Johnson County. I mean, which is where he lost. And I, I got to I got to push back on that because it wasn't just Johnson County. Well, right. County, several other. You know, that's. Right. Really, I think that's the key question for Barbara Boyet. She needs to. She needs to dominate in Johnson and Wyandotte counties, but she also needs to, if she's going to win a statewide race as a Democrat in Kansas, she needs to perform well in Wichita. She needs to run up the score in Lawrence and Topeka as well. And I think the jury's still out on whether or not she can do that against either candidate. Can we acknowledge that this is also June and a lot can happen between now and November? And it's also, it's it's not November of 2018. So I think, quite frankly, that the common wisdom is a little bit less uh, foreseeable than a lot of people might think at this time. I mean, I think I think it's a fair point there. I, I don't even know that there is common wisdom. This, this <laughs> unlike a year that we've experienced, you know, as people have pointed out, we've got protests that are comparable to 1968. We've got a pandemic that is comparable to 1918. And we've got an economic collapse that is comparable to 1929. We're getting some of the most seismic years of U.S. history combined into just a few months. So it it is the race feels more unpredictable than it could. And there's ways in which that may shake out in ways that benefit the Republican candidates. And there's ways in which that may make Barbara Boyer uh, capable of becoming the first Democrat since 1932. Uh, to win a Senate race in Kansas. And, you know, that's an important thing. Keep in mind, the last time the Democrats won a Senate race in Kansas, it was during the Great Depression. Right, right. Do we think it's a two-person race on the Republican side between Roger Marshall and Chris Kobach? Is there any chance, I know Sue Wagle is out now, any chance for Lindstrom, David Lindstrom, any chance for for Bob Hamilton to come out of nowhere and, and challenge? I think it's a, a two-person race. 
but at the same time, Bob Hamilton is a factor in the race. And, and what I mean is Marshall has the most money on the Republican side uh, as far as what he's raised, but Hamilton can meet him uh, with the money that he gets from his own bank accounts. Uh, Marshall is getting a lot of the institutional support, whether you're looking at the Kansas Farm Bureau, Kansans for Life, more national Republican groups are beginning to embrace him. Uh, a lot of the groups that maybe were hoping and waiting for Mike Pompeo to get in have now seemed to have accepted that Roger Marshall is their best alternative to Chris Kobach. But keep in mind, there's going to be attack ads against Roger Marshall from the Club for Growth, which is this powerful national group that doesn't like him because he, he beat Tim Hill's camp in, in 2016. And you've got Bob Hamilton, who is spending a lot of money. And, I, you know, the, those first two weeks of May, uh, I, I noticed that a lot of people were reading the, the things I had written about Bob Hamilton in March. And I looked into it and I realized that he had spent a quarter of a million dollars in a two-week span. That's not nothing. I, but I think it's still for Hamilton. He got into this race very late. He's an unknown political quantity. And he had a very uh, weak debate performance you know, the first time he was actually doing something other than appearing in a commercial. So I'd say a lot of the folks in D.C. who are open to the idea of this self-funder are turning increasingly towards Marshall as their best option. And I don't think Hamilton has the same inroads with uh, Republican organizations in Kansas that either Marshall or Kobach but doesn't his presence in the race, we'll move on in just a second to Brian, but doesn't his presence help Kobach in the sense that it widens the field, lowers the margin for the nominee? I mean, that's classic theory, you know, that the more people are in, the more chances for guys like Kobach. Absolutely. And I mean, Republicans succeeded in getting Susan Wagle to drop out, and she acknowledged that it was based on conversations with Republican leaders. They didn't get Dave Lindstrom out. Bob Hamilton is still in the race and is going to be spending significantly. That really fractures. Uh, that really fractures the field, and also there are all of these candidates, many of whom who don't even have campaign websites, who have filed. So there's going to be a lot of names on the ballot besides the the three or four we actually uh, know. And you know, there's one name that's actually interesting to me is Steve Roberts, a member of the Board of Education. Uh, is going to be on there. He's well known in the Johnson County area. He hasn't really ran a very active campaign, but you have the name Roberts on a Senate race. And, you know, maybe some people just see the name Roberts and check it off. Quickly, let's talk about the third district, if we could, Brian. Sure. Um, typically, again, uh, traditional theory is that. Um, uh, the first reelect for an incumbent House member is the most fraught with danger. Uh, and so Sharice David should be most vulnerable now. Uh, and the Republicans have certainly tried to put together a pretty decent field. What do we see in that race? Um, I don't think we see a clear cut front runner. The closest we see to a front runner is Amanda Adkins, who is a Cerner executive who's on, on leave. She's the former chair of the Kansas Republican party. She actually managed one of uh, Sam Brownback's U S Senate campaigns. So she's got a, she's had the strongest fundraising and she, she's the most known among GOP circles, but I don't think she's done. I don't, done anything and whether you want to blame the pandemic or other things that have necessarily distinguished her to the point where 
those other candidates can't catch fire. And, and you know, thinking back on the Democratic side, Sharice Davids really didn't um, catch fire until very late in that primary in 2018. I mean, a lot of people uh, 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 credit the Star's editorial board's endorsement in getting her over the line against um, against Brent Welder. I will remind that uh, the news side has no no role. <laughs> if you didn't agree with that, you know, send your comments to Dave. Um, so it, it is very possible that Sarah Hart Weir or Adrian Vallejo Foster, uh, one of these candidates, uh, could catch fire late. Uh, there's also, you know, Mike Beeler, who is a former Burns and Mac executive. I'm a little bit more skeptical uh, that, you know, based on his fundraising that he'll get in. And then I, I was surprised that uh, former state rep Tom Love had a surprise entrance on June 1st. And, you know, Tom Love actually did run for this seat twice before, once as a, a Democrat and uh, once as a Republican, each yeah. time to uh, Jan Myers. Okay, well, we're about out of time, Brian. We thank you so much for joining us. And again, just as a final thought, again, we're 60 days away from the primary. And by the way, we're not sure what turnout is going to look like, whether mail-in ballots in Kansas are going to make a difference. I'd like to make a point on mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots are going to be a huge uh, uh, factor on that. And, I mean, we had a story about that a couple days ago. But, you know, since I wrote that story, people have even reached out to me about how much more significant it is. When you see in counties that you have, um, you know, well over 10% of their electorate, has uh, has opted for a mail ballot, and, and we expect that number to continue to grow, especially as Johnson County uh, has and Central County have have sent out mail ballots uh, or applications to their voters. Um, that's significant when you keep in mind how low primary turnout is. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see about half of the ballots cast in the primary be through mail. So it's really going to be a significant factor. And that is a reminder that in Kansas, unlike Missouri, you can request a mail ballot for any reason. You don't, you don't need to come up with. Well, not only that, but Johnson County is sending out notices to voters saying, here's an application for an absentee. If you want one, you know, one out of four Republican votes in the primary comes from Johnson County. I mean, that is an important dynamic. It's John. It's it's not just Johnson County. It's Johnson County, right? Clearly, on it, and then you know they're even ha- in, and we've we've got big mail voting uh, percentages in Western Kansas. So it's going to be a, a significant factor. And you know, I, I actually said that's an interesting thing about Kobach. I was on the phone with him yesterday um, after uh, the state announced that it would be seeking to appeal to the Supreme Court uh, the case that he had lost. Uh, uh, for the voter registration law. Kobach, as, as, as much as he will tell you that voter fraud is a real issue, he doesn't attack Kansas mail ballots. And I think, you know, in terms of policy, he'll point to the fact that voter ID and other restrictions still apply for mail ballots in Kansas. So he thinks they're safer than in other states. But I also don't think it's very helpful for a Republican candidate in Kansas to discourage mail voting when mail voting could be the way you win. All right. Brian Lowry of the uh, McClatchy DC Bureau. So much to talk about, and we appreciate your time here. Please uh, join us again as we get closer to the primary, and we'll break down some of these races that are so important. Thanks again for joining us from Washington. Thanks for having me, and uh, stay safe. 
We'll do it. Derek Donovan, as always, thank you for joining us for the podcast. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. You have been on Deep Background.